Happy Saturday. We are coming up on the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Blair Mountain, which started on August 25th, 1921. So for today's Saturday Classic, we are returning to our episode on that battle, which came out on July 23rd, 2014. Toward the end of this episode, we talk about a lengthy back and forth involved with trying to get the site of the battle listed on the National Register of Historic Places. That back and forth continued after this episode came out, including a case in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. After all that, on June 27, 2018, Joy Beasley, keeper of the National Register of Historic Places, issued a memorandum calling the 2009 decision to remove the site from the register erroneous and confirming that it is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. So enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Coal mining is practically synonymous with West Virginia. There are lots of other industries in West Virginia, lots of people in West Virginia who have nothing to do with the coal mining industry. But of the 25 U.S. states that produce coal, West Virginia's production is the second largest uh, behind Wyoming. Coal production and all of the accidents and the labor disputes that have come along with coal dis- uh, with coal production have all just played a really central role in West Virginia's history. And today's story played a huge part not only in West Virginia's history, but also in the greater context of labor rights in the rest of the United States. In 1921, coal miners who were completely fed up with unfair labor practices and exploitation and attempts to prevent them from unionizing took up arms against their employers, and the resulting Battle of Blair Mountain went on for five days and has been called the biggest armed uprising on U.S. soil since the Civil War. In the late 19th and early 20th century, the coal industry in America was built on company towns and exploitive labor practices. And this wasn't just the practice of one mine or one mining company. Mines with different owners operating in different states all basically followed the same system with similar labor practices. And if you are not familiar with the company town phenomenon, to start off, they did not pay in actual money. They paid company scrip, and company scrip was accepted only at the company store, which was also run by the coal company. So since miners weren't being paid real money that was legal tender anywhere else, they had no option to shop anywhere other than the company store, which was owned by their bosses. And it is probably no surprise that goods at these company stores were expensive thanks to a hefty markup. So if the mine gave its workers a raise, it also raised prices at the store, so the increase in wages didn't cut into the mine's profits. In addition to the company store was company housing provided by the mines, which deducted the rent from the workers' pay, and often this housing was little better than a shack. And miners also frequently had to lease the equipment that they needed just to do their jobs, and they leased that equipment, of course, from the coal company. Instead of being paid an hourly rate or some kind of salary, miners were paid by the pound of coal that they mined. And to further game the system, coal companies used all kinds of tricks to alter the apparent weight of the coal that the miners were bringing up. So, for example, a cart that was supposed to hold 2,000 pounds of coal 
might really uh, hold 2,500 pounds of coal, meaning that the miners were mining 500 extra pounds of coal that they weren't being paid for. And miners also had their pay docked for anything that was in their cart but was not coal. So if there were pieces of rocks in the mix, that was also uh, docked from their pay. And the person who made that judgment was someone hired by the coal company who was trained to err in the coal company's favor. It was not uncommon for the bosses to deliberately overestimate how much rock was in the coal, and this is a practice that was known as cribbing. Uh, All of this really meant that often coal miners were not even breaking even. They were effectively losing money by having a job working in a coal company or working in a coal mine. And on top of that, coal mining is dangerous work. It was particularly dangerous in West Virginia at this point because the mines in West Virginia weren't regulated as well, or they were, no, no mine was really being regulated extremely well, but the mines in West Virginia had less regulation than in other parts of the United States. Between 1890 and 1912, more miners died on the job in West Virginia than in any other state. With similarly exploitive and dangerous conditions all over the country, miners tried to unionize so that they could collectively negotiate for actual pay with money instead of scrip and safer working conditions. Immediately, mines had employees sign what was known as yellow dog contracts, and these were contracts that basically said they would not join a union. In spite of all this opposition, the United Mine Workers of America got its start in Ohio in 1890. The UMW organized miners in several states over the next decade, and its first recognition in West Virginia was in 1902. As is often the case, the process of unionizing workers and becoming recognized as a bargaining organization was a long, contentious, and sometimes violent process. This was true all over and in many industries, not just in West Virginia or in coal mining. Coal companies would evict striking workers from company-owned housing, so this caused tent cities to spring up around mining towns. And the companies would also hire detective agencies to investigate and harass any miners who were talking about unionizing. One of the agencies that frequently worked on behalf of the mining industry was called the Baldwin-Feltz Agency, which employed all kinds of spy work and intimidation techniques on behalf of the mine operators. Yeah, the word detective agency in this context is is kind of generous. (laughs) A lot of this work was not detective work. It was threatening, bullying, harassment, sometimes murdering work. So over the years, as miners tried to organize, mine operators and miners alike took up arms against one another. And sometimes on the miners' sides, these weapons were actually provided to them by the union. Unionizers and mining companies were at odds with one another in West Virginia all the way through the 1900s and the 19-teens. At one point in 1912, Governor William E. Glassick declared martial law and dispatched the militia in response to labor disputes and strikes that had turned violent. It was during that particular period that Mary Harris Jones, also known as Mother Jones, started advocating for for labor rights in West Virginia. Through the mid to late 19-teens, relations between the miners and the coal companies were a little bit calmer thanks to a changeover in UMWA leadership and the United States' entry into World War I. Because of the war, there was a huge demand for coal, which meant that there was more work and there was also better pay. But even though there wasn't quite so much outright conflict between the unions and the coal companies at that particular point, 
the unions really hadn't been able to make much headway in southern and southwestern West Virginia. The mining companies there were taking great pains to make sure unions could not get a foothold. And in Logan County in particular, mine operators were working directly with Sheriff Don Chafin to keep union organizers out of the area. So by 1919, West Virginia's Logan and Mingo counties were the largest coal-producing region that had no union. Before we talk a little bit more about specifically what was going on in southern West Virginia, let's take a brief moment for a word from a sponsor. A few things happened to turn this situation into a real powder keg in southern West Virginia. Word reached the capital of Charleston, West Virginia, that Sheriff Chafin and his deputies were harassing and beating up labor organizers. This led to an armed protest march, and the governor, who at that point was John J. Cornwell, promised that he would investigate. But the commission that was appointed to do the investigation wound up finding in favor of the mine companies. A few months later, union mine workers got a raise granted by the U.S. Coal Commission. This didn't affect southern West Virginia's non-union workers who organized a strike in response. The UMW saw this as an opportunity to get southern mine workers to join the union. This wasn't 100% because they wanted to combat the unfair labor practices that were going on in southern West Virginia, although that was a factor. A big part of it was also that having so many mines operating with non-union labor and having those mines be particularly productive had the potential to really undermine the union and the union's work elsewhere in the state. In response to the UMW activities, uh, the coal company operators called in detectives again, detectives with the air quotes, from the Baldwin-Feltz Detective Agency to try to break the union. They also fired everyone who joined the union, and they evicted them from their company housing. On May 19, 1920, things took a violent turn in the town of Matewan. Sid Hatfield, also known as Two-Gun Sid, uh, yes, one of those Hatfields, if you are familiar with the story of the Hatfields and the McCoys, although that was long in the past at this point. Sid Hatfield was the police chief of Maywan, and he encouraged residents to arm themselves in response to all this trouble that was going on, and they did. When detectives Albert and Lee Feltz tried to arrest Hatfield, gunfire broke out, and 11 people were killed. Seven of them were detectives, and four of them were residents of the town. Among the town's dead was the mayor, and among the detectives killed were the Feltz brothers, who were brothers of Tom Feltz, the agency's chief. Because Hatfield later married the mayor's widow, people speculated that he had pulled the trigger himself. He faced charges for it, and he became something of a folk hero, but he was ultimately acquitted. This was really kind of a tipping point, and following the Matewan massacre, union membership grew really quickly, with 90% of Mingo County's miners being part of the UMW by July of that year. With such an upswelling of support, the UMW called for a strike to demand better pay and better working conditions. The mine operators, on the other hand, brought in strike breakers and armed guards, and they carried on with business as usual mining coal. And in Mingo County, people were jailed without bail for everything from carrying union literature to carrying a gun. When the Mingo County jail was full, they started sending inmates to jails in neighboring counties. At this point, the unions and the mines were effectively at war with each other. Gunfire was exchanged on a regular basis. 
the pro-union forces would attack non-union mines and miners who weren't in the union. They also destroyed railroad tracks that were allowing the mines to get their coal out to the buyers who needed to receive it. Detectives, guards, deputies, and others on the anti-union side attacked the tent colonies where fired workers had been living. And they also investigated, threatened, and harassed the striking workers. And this conflict went on for more than a year. On August 1st, 1921, Sid Hatfield and another man named Ed Chambers were going to stand trial on charges of conspiracy stemming to their unionizing work. And this conspiracy trial was going to take place in McDowell County, where there was really strong anti-union sentiment. While the two men were on their way into the courthouse for their trial, detectives from the Baldwin Feltz Agency shot and killed them both. Naturally, there was outrage. Uh, A week later, a crowd of hundreds marched on the Capitol in Charleston in protest. And they presented a list of demands for better conditions to the governor the governor who denied all of them 10 days later. The miners started planning a second march. They were going to gather in a town outside of Charleston, and from there, they were going to march to Mingo County to free all of the union organizers and others who were being jailed there. And basically, they were going to try to force the companies uh, that were running the mines to back down. But to do this, they were going to have to go through Logan County, and this was a stronghold of the mining companies and of Sheriff Chafin, who had a long history of using strong-arm tactics against unions. Sheriff Chafin also had the financial backing of the Logan County Coal Operators Association, so they funded his efforts to basically raise a small army to fend off these miners. As all this was going on, Frank Keeney and Bill Blizzard of the UMW tried to rally more support among all the union members. Uh, They were trying to get as much backing as as possible for their effort. On the other hand, Mother Jones was pretty sure this was not going to go in the miners' favor, and she was trying to dissuade them from taking further action at this point. The march to Mingo County started on August 24th with the miners who had armed themselves with all manner of weapons wearing red bandanas so they could easily identify one another. A lot of these men were veterans of World War I. They were trained in combat and they had among them men with experience in strategy and tactics. They developed codes so that they could communicate with each other. They cut telephone and telegraph lines so that the mine operators would not be able to get information and they generally mounted a pretty organized resistance. Uh, Women played a part in all of this as well. They donned nurses' caps with the UMW insignia and prepared for the inevitable injuries that they knew were going to need attention because they knew there was a lot of danger and people were going to get hurt. In addition to using the money that the Mine Operators Association had given him to, to build up his force, Sheriff Chafin also rallied the strike breakers to fight on the anti-union side of the battle. That kind of fleshed out the ranks of detectives, mine guards, and state police who were all set to defend the mine operators. The mine workers vastly outnumbered Chafin's force, but Chafin's people had far better weapons, including machine guns and an artillery piece. The governor, who could see that things were really escalating, asked Washington, D.C. for help. And at first, the federal response was to send in Brigadier General Harry Bandholtz to try to keep the peace. The miners knowing that the federal government had been called in, actually thought that this federal support was going to be on their side. But atmosphere at this point was extremely anti-unionization in the United States. 
A lot of states had anti-union laws on the books, and a lot of business leaders were certain that unions would just put a damper on post-war growth. Wanting to end things without further bloodshed, Bandholtz quite candidly told UMW leaders Frank Keeney and Fred Mooney that if they could just get the miners to go home, it would all be over. The two of them did try to get the miners to go home, and some of the miners did start on their way back. But before long, one of the state police captains who was on the side of the mine operators started a fight with some armed miners, and at least one person was killed in the resulting fray. Many of the miners who had agreed to go home turned around and went back to the march, really ready for a fight on August 29th. Keeney and Mooney fled at this point. Both of them were facing murder charges due to earlier events, and they knew that they'd have no sympathy now that they'd failed to keep the peace. Bill Blizzard took their place as the top UMW leader. The miners' forces met up with, ha- with Chafin's hastily built army on Blair Mountain, and the mountain basically lay in the miners' path to Mingo County. They had really no choice other than they could go over it or they could go around it. While the miners had much better numbers, in addition to their better firepower, Chafin's men also had the high ground. As the miners tried to break through the defenders' lines, Chafin dropped tear gas and bombs on them from chartered biplanes. When it became extremely clear that their efforts to end things peacefully had failed, Brigadier General Banholt sent in the troops from Fort Thomas, Kentucky. The first of these troops arrived on September 1st and mostly did reconnaissance work. Infantry started arriving in Logan and Mingo counties on September 3rd. And the miners, who were not really keen on the idea of fighting against the actual army, started to surrender, although some of them continued fighting into the 4th of September. And even though the miners ultimately surrendered, many really look at this as a moral victory. Uh, It was the federal troops and not the mine companies that they'd surrendered for. About 1,000 miners out of the estimated 10,000 who fought officially surrendered. They were supposed to turn in their weapons, but the miners only turned in about 400 guns. The rest of the weapons were dropped or hidden or smuggled back to the miners' homes. The death toll of the Battle of Blair Mountain was somewhere between 30 and 50, which is surprising considering how many men fought and what kinds of weapons had been employed. This seems to have been because a lot of the fighting happened through brush without a clear line of sight on either party's part. The miners who surrendered were allowed to go home, and some of them were transported there by train. The idea was that the leaders of this resistance were the ones who were going to be held responsible. All in all, there were 1,217 indictments that came down from a grand jury as a result of the battle. 325 of these indictments were for murder and 24 were for treason. Most of these eventually led to acquittals or they were thrown out or they just never came to trial. But because of the battle and the surrender, the Union itself, especially its presence in southern West Virginia, was almost destroyed. Membership in southern West Virginia dropped just precipitously, and it took almost a decade for the UMW to regroup and start advocating for better working conditions again. In 2008, the site of the battle was nominated to be placed on the National Register of Historic Places. 
Before a property can be listed on the register, owners of the property have the chance to object to its being listed. The back and forth that went on about whether the Blair Mountain site should be listed was pretty long. Originally, there were 66 owners who were identified as owning land that was part of the site. But that number rose as high as 68 and dropped as low as 57 over the back and forth. The number of objections to the site being listed on the register also changed a lot based on who was doing the counting, environmental groups or coal companies. Consequently, the battlefield was briefly placed on the National Register of Historical Places and then it was removed from the register after only a few months. Several conservation groups, including the Sierra Club, sued the U.S. Department of the Interior over the battlefield's delisting. The U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia upheld the decision in 2012, so the battlefield is not currently on the register. Yeah, environmental groups were really hoping that having it listed on the Register of Historic Places, while that would not give it complete protection from an environmental standpoint, it would offer some protection. Uh, One of the reasons that people are so interested in this is because of mountaintop removal mining. There's an ongoing struggle between people who really want to preserve the mountain and people who want to mine it. And in June of 2011, environmentalists and historians recreated the 1921 march to Blair Mountain as part of a big protest and rally for preservation efforts. On the other hand, people who supported the coal industry basically lined the root of the march with their own counter-protest. The battle and the miners who originally fought it have been brought up as a symbol of the fight to preserve the mountain or to stop mountaintop removal mining entirely. Opponents point out that this is really an appropriation. They weren't fighting for the mountain at all. They were fighting for safer jobs with fair pay and non-exploitive business practices, as well as the right to unionize. Coal continues to be a major industry in West Virginia, but new mining techniques and new methods mean that there are fewer jobs within the industry. So while overall the coal industry pays pretty well now, um, there are far fewer jobs available. So the people mining coal are making a much better living today than they were in 1921, but unemployment is a huge issue in the regions of West Virginia where the main industry has always been coal mining. And sort of as a coda note on the word redneck, About 60% of the people who requested this episode, because we've had quite a number of requests, uh, have mentioned in their requests that the Battle of Blair Mountain was where the word redneck originated uh, to mean a white rural person that you believe to be poorer and more ignorant than you are. Uh, First of all, redneck is actually considered a slur. It is no more acceptable than any derogatory word for people from other regions that people might use. Second of all... The word redneck actually appeared in print for the first time in 1830, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. And Newport Royal reported it as, quote, a name bestowed on Presbyterians in Fayetteville. She was writing about Fayetteville, North Carolina. It's not totally clear how the word redneck morphed from that use into today's sort of hillbilly-esque flavor. But it was used as a synonym for hayseed by 1891 and was also used to mean an uncouth countryman by 1913. So it was definitely established in the vernacular with the meaning pretty much like it means today before the events in 1921 at Blair Mountain. So while the miners were wearing red bandanas and they probably were called rednecks because they had red red bandanas on, that use is not where the word 
redneck came from. The more you know. <laughs> the more you know. Yeah. Deep. It drives me kind of crazy when people use that word. Uh, because it's it's a very derogatory term. I know that there are many people who use the word with pride, as there are many people who use many slurs to talk about themselves with pride. But uh, I cannot think of any time that I have used one per- or I've heard one person say that word about another person without casting huge disparaging judgment on them. Yeah, it usually does come with a, a healthy uh, dose of superiority. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us on this Saturday. Since this episode is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar over the course of the show, that could be obsolete now. Our current email address is historypodcast at iheartradio.com. Our old How Stuff Works email address no longer works. You can find us all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 